Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Ariana Grande's Thank You Next music video is a treasure trove of pop culture inside jokes and messages. Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald is the latest chapter of J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter chronology, but fans are cursing her for fudging pieces of Potterverse canon previously set in Sorcerer's Stone. And radio stations are saying no, no, no to Baby It's Cold Outside for its tone deafness in the Me Too era. It's our pop culture roundtable. Later in the show, The Nutcracker has brought visions of prancing sugar plums to holiday ballet goers for decades. Now a handful of other productions of the festive seasonal favorite are dancing to their own beat. There's something really magical about taking things from two different worlds and bringing them together. So hip-hop dance plus classical music. Reimagining Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker. But first, joining me in the studio... Rachel Rubin, professor of American studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome back, Rachel. Thank you, Callie. And Michael Jeffries, associate professor of American studies at Wellesley College. Hello, Michael. Hi, Callie. I'm glad to have you both. Let's start off with Ariana Grande's big new song, Thank You, Next, which is sold off the charts, literally, and has all of these interesting pieces in it, which are references to other movies, other cultural sayings. They're called Easter eggs in in pop culture because you go searching for them in the music video. Um, But they're all these inside messages. It's also uh, stirred a bit of controversy by some who are thinking it has anti-gay references. By the way, for people who don't know, Ariana Grande was engaged to Pete Davidson on SNL. They broke up. So... This came out shortly after their breakup, and she's sort of thanking all of the the past men in her lives, including him, and then saying, next. So, Rachel, what do you think? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, you know, and the, the business, the anti-gay thing, the person, there's been a, they've apologized to her for that. But one of the fascinating things, well, there's a couple fascinating things about it. One is this is how she got her start, right? Like she hmm. started by imitating different um, musicians um, and that like she was very good at invoking previous artistic productions. So that's very interesting. But it also does show the many places meaning is created in popular culture. So if you want to understand this song, if you just want to dance to the song, you can, right? But you'll get a lot more out of it if you've seen the movies um, that are referred to in it, for instance. Um, It's very, very layered And um, it's very literally layered. And so one of the things that strikes me as very important about something like that is it reminds us 
that that's just pop culture, mm-hmm. right? That almost all pop culture does make references, whether everybody gets them or not. These are just like more direct and more literal and it and 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 reminds us all the different places where meanings created. All right, so let's listen to this is the, the the prelude to Ariana Grande's music video for Thank You Next, and it's a montage and it's a reference to the movie Mean Girls. Ariana broke off an engagement, so I found a guy to propose to me, and I broke off an engagement. I heard she's a lesbian now and dating some chick called Aubrey. Sick. I heard if you record her snoring and play it backwards, it sounds like Fantasia. Ariana says, honest to God, knock me out. So I decided to punch myself in the face. It was awesome. So that's Mean Girls. And Michael, before you speak, let's just hear a, a clip from the song itself. So this is from the song, Thank You Next. Nice catchy beat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not a bad song. I mean, there, it really is um, a step in her career toward a kind of feminist affirmation of herself, control over her romantic life, even in the face of the paparazzi and the demands of, of public life. The other pieces of the video that are more difficult to work through, I think, are the pop culture references, because there are several that it's not clear that Ariana Grande fans, plenty of whom are quite young, have seen all of oh, these movies, right? Yeah. I mean, Bring that's It right. On, for example, yeah. is the central piece of the of the video, as is Mean Girls. These movies came out a while ago. A long time ago. Yeah, yeah, a while ago, right? So if you're a 14-year-old Ariana Grande fan, I don't know that you've seen Bring It On. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that I always wonder is, on one hand, she's piggybacking off of the success of those films. She's also introducing those films to a new generation of people. The other part about the, the politics of the video, I think it really is a mixed story. So one of the Easter eggs that mm-hmm. got pointed out mm-hmm. by uh, critics and fans is she's reading a book about immigration and refugee law mm. and, and, and that's kind of a reference to the immigration policy of the Trump administration. And then there are a whole series of other clips and uh, dance moves that suggest playing on both racial identity and sexual identity. So despite the fact that that article about queerness in the video was, um, wasn't was uh, retracted, but there was an additional sort of apology around uh, the critique that was directed toward Ariana, there is some question about how does queer politics actually play out in the mm-hmm. video? Because she has folks who are playing with gender in the video in several scenes. Some of the hairdressers, one of the people speaking in the beginning of the video. Um, and, and it's not clear that beyond that play, she actually has anything to say about it. Mm-hmm. Yet she has a very loyal queer fan base. Mm-hmm. So I think some folks, like the author of the initial piece, were wondering, well, are you just using mm-hmm. us because we're entertaining? Or do you have a politics behind putting us in these videos, right? Are you just using the black cheerleaders from the Bring It On movie uh, because they're entertaining? Or are you trying to explode some of the stereotypes of blackness and whiteness that are portrayed in Bring It On and other coming-of-age high school movies? Uh, and that's and that's tricky. I mean, that's yeah. tricky on a third layer, too, because, you know, sometimes if you just put things like that in as though it were normal and there's no comment mm-hmm. to make right. or to be made, that in itself, right, is extremely meaningful. Um, I'm here with Rachel Rubin from UMass Boston and Michael Jeffries from Wellesley College, and we're talking about pop culture and, in this moment, Ariana Grande's song. So there's one little follow-up, Michael, to your the racial context. The author, who's now 
gotten some discrediting, as we've talked about of that article, talked about blackface, mm-hmm. but a different kind of black. In other words, she's not. She didn't take her face and painted it black, but throughout the video, she becomes different shades. Yes. And to your point, what do you suppose that's supposed to mean? Or do you have any sense of how that should be taken? It's hard to know what to make yeah. of it. I mean, yeah. the way I read it initially, and I've seen the video several times now trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. The way I read it initially was it's sort of trying to explode some of these character portrayals through exaggeration because she's so obviously made up and some of the clips of her face and her appearing, she appears right after some characters who are also obviously exaggerating stereotypes of what high school students are supposed to be. So I read it as a kind of uh, racial play through mm-hmm. exaggeration rather than uh, appropriation. But nevertheless, it's it's ambiguous. And if the only statement you're going to make is that race is operating in some way here or we're playing with race, but you're not acknowledging how power informs your privilege to put on race and then take uh, take it off whenever you like, that's a bit of a problem in my in my view. Yeah, I think people will be talking about this for a long time beyond just the fact that it initially really is about just breaking up with all these people mm-hmm. and going on. Something that's popped up recently, um, Christmas song, Baby It's Cold Outside. It's from the 50s. It's been around. People have been playing it. It's a traditional part of the holiday playlist. This year, not so much. In the context of Me Too, a lot of people heard it on radio stations and said, take that off. Um, First, I'm going to play a cut from Baby It's Cold Outside, and then we'll go from there. The neighbors might But baby, it's bad out there. Say, what's in this drink? Caps to be had out there. I wish I knew how. Your eyes are like stars right now. break this spell. I'll take your hat your hair looks swell. I ought to say no, 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 Mind sir. if I move in closer. At least I'm going to say that I try. What's the sense of hurting my pride? I really can't Oh, stay. baby, don't hold out, baby. Oh, it's cold outside. So that's Baby, It's Cold Outside. It's a holiday standard. And now some radio stations have taken it off. And in fact, one in um, San Francisco is doing a poll asking people, the listeners, after having taken it off, well, what do you think? And... Uh, as of this taping, it's running 90%. Keep it as it is. It's it's just fun. What's, pro- what's the problem? Um, Rachel? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are many problems, actually. I think many problems. Um, but you played what I think of as the most controversial line, where she says, what's that in my drink? You know, there's this, like, hint, right, that she might... That there might be what what's that called? The roofies or roofies some, yes, or, or whatever some, that some yeah. early version date rape, of yeah. date rape mm-hmm. drug mm-hmm. that is that's in her drink. Um, and then you know, but the things that he says too, you know, like don't hurt my pride. Also, I think sort of like imply that you know it's 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 nothing like sort of equally between them, right? It's like you know it it sort of it lifts a man up to have sex with a lot of different women. So I think that, I actually think that there has been conversation about this song for a few years, and Mm. there was a male-female couple who did another version of it where she says something, and he's like, it's okay, I'm going, it's okay, I'm Mm. going, you know. So I do feel like, um, I do feel like that this is a, a social conversation that we are starting to have. I think it is a reminder of the way, um, you know, popular culture functions. It sort of hosts these conversations, which we have been having, as you said, the Me Too movement we've been having, right, in a number of places. Um, and obviously this isn't the only song that has this built in. 
You know, I could make a list of songs that are about being stalked as though it were some kind of romantic, you know, love or, Mm -hmm. you know, and so forth. Um, So it will be interesting to see um, how many radio stations ban it. But I think that we should remember that this is just the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I could, and I'm sure Michael could too, we could come up with like a list of songs, right, that at some point were not considered horrifying, you know, racially mostly, but that at some point were not considered horrifying and now are considered horrifying and are not played, you know, anymore on the radio station. So it's interesting to watch the evolution of our vision of, uh, of this song. So, you know, the lyrics, Michael, uh, I have to say, I never really paid attention to the lyrics, really. I just sort of just, you know, and now with... Um, renewed eyes and listening to people about it. Now I'm just reading these lyrics. I simply must go, baby, it's cold outside. The answer, the answer is, is no. no. The answer is no. No, yep. baby, it's cold outside. Yeah. <laughs> um, my sister will be suspicious. My brother will be there at the door. I mean, this is this is overt. <laughs> yeah, those to me are the two lyrics. That yeah. The answer is no mm-hmm. and the drug and the drink. I like, mean, those are the two that are sort of, they, they cross a line for me. It was, if I was sort of, somewhat unclear about it before clearly this is it's it's a heinous representation of courtship yeah. uh, and 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 here's the thing the folks who are saying um well it's just flirtation and that's kind of what flirtation was at the time that doesn't make it okay yeah that's <laughs> true like right. that may be true like it may be true that <laughs> it may be true that we think of this kind of interaction no, between so men that, and women then, right. then and I'm, now. But that's what I, that's sort of mm. what I was saying. Yeah. Stuff mm. that was like sort of normal racialization mm. is not okay. Mm. Stuff that was normal between men and women is no longer okay. Absolutely. And I do want to also point out that there is a generational shift because, you know, my daughter, she, she's not hearing this, thank God, but she's 21 now. She and her friends have been ranting about this song mm. for like five or six years. Interesting. And yeah. so I do think that there is a generational shift that's happening mm. yeah well good <laughs> yeah. Because, because we need the shift i mean when as you said kelly when you actually read the lyrics it's clear that this is a violation and i and i think that you know it, not only is pop culture and music a, a space where we get to have these conversations but it's it's a space where we're socialized to behave in certain ways and think that certain things and, are acceptable and this is part of the socialization that we need to reject it's not even just a violation, as you put it, but it's like a violation that's presented as humorous. Right. Yeah. Right? So if you think about, oh, gosh, like, every move you make, I'll be watching you, mm-hmm. that song's creepy. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. there are creepy songs. Well, you know, my, my mind went to, this is just weird. But this in is the, supposed in, to be charming. Yeah. Right. In, the, in, in this moment, I just thought of uh, the Honeymooners and Ralph, like, you know, to the moon, Alice, you know, uh, indicating he was going to beat her, mm-hmm. you know, at all, and every, everybody thought that was funny at the time. Oh, yeah, there's yeah. all those times right. in I Love Lucy where she cringes like yeah. that. I mean, you know, and... So it's really interesting, though. I will say there were some people saying this morning as I was watching various uh, reports of this, saying, um, well, listen, uh, what's, what's next? Uh, I saw Mommy kissing Santa Claus. I mean, what's wrong with that? It's not the same thing. <laughs> I just want to point out these lyrics are... 
something else. So there we are on Baby It's Cold Outside. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are our pop culture experts, Michael Jeffries of Wellesley College and Rachel Rubin of UMass Boston. And we're discussing the latest pop culture news you need to know. Now, I was not aware of this magazine, uh, Rookie, but um, it had a lot of support, and it just announced that it was going out of business. A lot of stuff going on with this. Um, the the uh, founder, Tavi Gevinson, 22 years old, said she could not afford to keep it up, and the only offers she was getting were from men, and the whole point of this thing was young women were running it and had a different perspective. Your response? Well, you know, I think part of it, I mean, part. Of, I also think another part of the dissolution of it is she started it when she was quite, quite, quite young, mm. and now she's an adult. You okay. know, and yeah. so it's just different. It's going to be different now. I was more taken with her saying there's not a space for those of us, whether she was younger or older now, to continue down the path we want to and and, you know, be supported financially unless somebody else takes over it. And then it not it, then it will really will not reflect who we right. are. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that is and that yeah. is important. Mm-hmm. I mean, that again, that is important to, to sort of realize that that's why and you know it's a it was a small it was a small publication but you know that is why it's important to realize that publications that are able to even for a short time sort of get outside of our smooth corporate culture are incredibly valuable Hmm. yeah i I think it does speak to the larger media context and consolidation in uh news media and and culture media i mean you know the fact that bezos owns the washington post for example is kind of a classic example (laughs) of this right (laughs) so so it's it's not out of line with broader trends in the industry the the other dimension of this, I think, is the gender dimension and the fact that it's not just gender, it's that these were younger women. Yes. So there was a there was a distinct kind of generational claim that Gevinson and mm-hmm. her colleagues uh, were, were, were making, and that, I think, has been lost. There isn't really another publication that can make that sort of claim. Um, but... I, I, I wonder, so, you know, though Teen Vogue has been real political. Yes, r- that's a recent turn, though, right? A from recent what they, turn. From what they used to be, from what they used to be to now. It's very much a corporate entity. That's yeah. true too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, that's true too. but I, so I, I, I wonder if, if we just need to be really specific about what we're saying is lost here. I, it seems to me that there is actually more space than ever for um, young women writers to be taken seriously as culture critics, uh, political analysts, et cetera, even in corporate media. But that's different from the issue, I think, of editorial control. Mm -hmm. So if you want a space to have a voice, I think there are spaces like that everywhere. You look at the success of uh, people in comedy, whether it's the... Uh, the women who did uh, Broad City mm. or Two Dope Queens, mm. right, and spun those off into m- much larger careers. Um, you, you look at you look at writing and the career of someone like um, I don't know Roxane Gay, mm. for example, who is a, writes in the Times all the time and has published these wonderful books about feminism and body image. There's space for individuals, but where's the editorial control mm. and where's the corporate backing? And right. that issue of control and gatekeeping, I think, is central to what uh, she's she's talking about. Yeah. So that's very pretty interesting. Now, speaking of writing, um, J.K. Rowling has come under uh, a fair amount of criticism from fans. J.K. Rowling, as people will know, is the author of the uh, very successful uh, Harry Potter series that I certainly read and everybody else has read. And if you haven't read it, people are still going back. It's their classics now. She's in recent years been adding to the conversation 
about those books. So in other words, those characters as fixed in the books, now she says, well, for example, Dumbledore is gay. People are like, well, wait a minute. Well, if he's if he was gay, why didn't you express that in the books? Um, we've talked here about folks taking artists who are no longer with us and sort of interpreting what they thought they meant after they're gone um, with various reimaginings. This She's alive, and it's she wrote it, but she's messing with it. So so what, what's going on here, Michael? It's tricky because <laughs> the, the attachments that younger fans have, there's, you know, nostalgia is really, it, it relies on some fixity, right? You need to be able to keep things in place because you want to return to the same space in the same moment. So some of the attachment these young fans have to these books are really strong. And if anything changes, the slightest detail changes, they actually take pride in recognizing those changes. But we're talking about larger shifts in character and, and things of that nature. And it is unique that that Rowling is the one making the changes. I mean, I think it. I think it kind of speaks to what we what we expect as fans and, and what we expect from the products themselves, and what we expect of the creators. If we expect the same kind of, of fixity from the products and the creators, we're not really allowing these people to to evolve a, as creators, right? And, and I think that's one of the things that keeps these ideas alive for these folks is that they're able to change them and they're able to revise them and they're able to give them new life and new voices. So so I don't actually have, have an issue with it, but I could see how younger fans or other fans who are, who are really committed to the fixity uh, would take offense. Well, the only thing I would say is, and I'm going to let's take a listen to this, she does have the place to do that. She's continuing a series now, right. this Fantastic Beast series. She can do whatever she wants right. with, you know, kind of references back to that. So why would mess with Harry Potter? Just mess with Fantastic Beasts. Mm-hmm. Here's a clip from Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. <laughs> you want me to hunt him down? To kill him? Dumbledore, why can't you go? I cannot move against Grindelwald. It has to be you. All right, so she's got, you know, references to some of the other characters. That's This is a whole complete new thing. Why why go back, Rachel? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It makes me very cranky when she does this sort of thing. And, you know, I mean, yes, she can go forward. She can add, you know, information. I can think of... Oh, oh, like a famous example recently was the sequel that came out to To Kill a Mockingbird mm, when right. Atticus Finch turns out to be a serious racist. Yeah. I was very happy about that because when I read that book as a kid, I hated it. But, um, but you know, so, so that sort of thing is fine. But for her to go back to readers who have read books, mm. interpreted books, you know, which is partly where meaning is created, saying, no, 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 you're wrong. I'm going to tell you exactly how... You're supposed to have taken that in. No, mm. you just don't get to do that. And like much more sophisticated writers say, you'll figure it out. Yeah, exactly. They do. Well, that's how I feel, too. Leave it alone, J.K. It and I love J.K. I like her commenting in general on, on these times with whatever she has to say. Just don't go messing with Harry Potter. That's just how I feel. <laughs> anyway, um, now to a completely different holiday story. Hallmark Movie Channel. Now... I will be, you know, shouted out of the building, but I have watched that stuff for years until I realized there's not a person of color on this channel. There was a petition about that a couple of years ago. They finally responded, and now there are some movies using the same formula, you know, 
girl meets boy, they're mad, she returns to the small hometown, she sees the value of being there, they end up together in the end. It's all very retro, it truly is. Um, there's usually no cussing, nothing, you know, there's a tiny little bit of tension and that's it. So it is kind of interesting this year to see these movies that uh, have leads who are actually African-American and other ethnicities. So here's a cut from the trailer of a new Hallmark holiday film, Christmas Everlasting. I am so sorry about the loss of your sister. At Christmas time. She knew I lived in New York. Why would she want me to stay here? Forgotten wishes. Maybe she wanted you to stop running from things. Can become second chances. Okay, Alice. Here I am, like you always wanted. Home for the holidays. Hallmark Hall of Fame. Um, that's Tatiana Ali, um, who's guesting in this. Got some work for us, a lot of people. Uh, Michael is just about to fall off his chair with laughter. <laughs> Go ahead, Michael. Well, I, you know, I I hesitate to comment because I didn't I didn't uh, grow up with the dedication to these films that perhaps you did, Callie. So so let me start there. But but I will say, you know, I'm just a I, I'm a little bit suspicious of if the politics of the films themselves haven't changed. What what role is this kind of symbolic representation actually playing? Right, if it's making it more palatable to to kind of slide in the same kinds of uh, conservative messages around family and, and and romantic partnership and those kinds of things. I get a little bit suspicious about it, but not being as familiar with the content of the films themselves, I would defer to you to you all <laughs> to tell me what it's really worth. Well, I mean, and uh, you know, but you have raised something that's very important, mm -hmm. which is I'm sure that there were tons of meanings in which they said, like, what's going to make people watch them more, mm -hmm. right? Like, what will we, what will we use? So, so that's an important point to make. Again, I I grew up in Baltimore, and the church that I grew up in, before just before I was born, there are thereabouts. It merged two churches, and one was an African-American church, and one was an Appalachian church. So, A, we had the best music in the city, but also, you know, I grew up with many, many, many conversations about how Jesus Christ was not white. Mm. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. So, like, there has been this sort of whitening of Christmas that goes in all sorts of directions. Like, how many Santa Clauses have you seen? That oh, are black. Uh, please go to my office. <laughs> Chock full of black Santas. All right, right. Because yeah. because you've like a, deliberately reached that is out. I'm yes. just saying, yes. like you know, and 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 a lot of it has to do with you know, a lot of it does have to do with social power. A lot of it has to do with, as as Michael correctly hinted, what will sell. You know, so it'll be interesting to see how this does. Is all I'm trying to say. It, it, but no, you're right. But mm. it'll be interesting to see how this does. Um, and I am, and it does sometimes give a little lift of hope when, like, everything isn't as whitened as it is. But there is, like, you need to keep this little cord of cynicism that they're doing it to make money. Oh, I, I'm clear about that. For me, it's so mindless, which is really dangerous to just, you know, let your mind. So, I mean, I don't have to, I can walk around, mm -hmm. I can do other stuff, I can check in when I want, because I know in the end everybody's going to be all right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so, and it's just kind of refreshing. Tatiana Ali is a pretty lady, and she's pretty, and the, they have nice, you know, young men who are handsome, and, you know, there no, you go. No, no, and that's really, yeah. it's important <laughs> yeah. to establish, you know, 
a range of what's pretty enhanced. There you go. So if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with Michael Jeffries and Rachel Rubin, and we're talking about the pop culture news you may have missed. All right, you got a comment on this Nicki Minaj and Cardi B beef. Nicki Minaj, Cardi B are both uh, rappers. They're both quite successful. Cardi B has, is more uh, recent uh, in her success, and Nicki Minaj has had a um, career for a long time. They Their beef together has ended up in a physical altercation. They've been back and forth in various media talking about each other. I just don't get it. First of all, I find it embarrassing, but maybe that's just me, but I just admitted to watching Hallmark movies, so, you know, what can I say? (laughs) Um, And then I just, I'm not understanding, so please illuminate me, both of you. Okay. Well, you know, there's one thing, and I can't get the quotation exactly right, unfortunately, but there is one time I believe Jay-Z was being pushed about his, his ongoing battle with Nas, and he leaned forward and said something like, it's professional wrestling mm. or it's performance art or something yeah. like that. I can't get it quite right. So, like, there is a certain amount of that. I mean, you could think of lots of pairs, right? Mm. So there is a certain amount of it that is just performance. Um, that said, the thing that makes me, that, that really gratified me about it excuse me, was when it spilled over into who they supported in the New York governor race. Oh, interesting from a political standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. I guess I hate to see black women, you know, who are both making a lot of money wearing designer dresses. What, what is this about? Really? If you really are mad at her, go tell her behind the closed doors. Yeah, I think, so <laughs> this, it, unlike the Hallmark thing, this is really right up my... <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I've been, you know, I've been following this fairly closely. I think the first thing to say is, I think you're right, right? They, there's, there's a lot of money to be made off of showing uh, black women act in unsophisticated ways. So a lot of people are profiting from what they see as the entertainment of black women acting trifling, basically, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, a, that is kind of a problem. On the other hand, um, but Cardi this B kind presents us so sophisticated. Like this she kind of thing, lists all the presidents and she And look, this kind of thing mm, happens all mm, the time in mm, rap music. Yep. Mm. All the time in rap music. And just because they're women, they're being held to a standard of oh, respectability that so many men who are rappers aren't held to. In addition, the fact that they're in uh, the midst of a disagreement right now doesn't mean they're like sworn enemies for life. So just this week, Meek Mill came out with an album and reconciled with Drake, who was a longtime nemesis of his, mm-hmm. on the air on Hot 97 in New York City. So these things don't last forever. Jay-Z and Nas, the battle you referenced, they reconciled as well. Mm-hmm. So to paint this as these people are sworn enemies, they're never going to be able to get along, I think that's just kind of a disservice to what we know about the history of rap. And if we include women in the history of rap, we'll see that this thing is not going to look the way it does today forever. The last thing I would say about this is one of the reasons I actually like it and one of the things I enjoy about hip-hop is so many of the messages that these rappers were sending at each other were uh, really sort of implicit under the radar and ambiguous, where people were constantly asking them, is that line in that song really about Nicki? Or is that line mm-hmm. in that song mm-hmm. really about Cardi? And they offer these half denials, uh-huh. that, but then they, they will go back two months later and talk about what they were really trying to say. And I actually think that's part of like the art and the tradition of hip hop is the the kind of subtweeting. Yeah, okay, <laughs> okay. Always, okay. But right. it's always been true. It has right? been. It's always, 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 always been true. And again, like to bring this sort of corporation back into it, they've tried 
tried to destroy that, but it it used to be that like you if something were sampled, it wasn't listed, right? And so some people would know what it was mm. and be inside mm. and some people didn't. So I like that. I mean, I like that they're it, participating in that tradition of yes. indirect indirect communication and conversation. The, the, the one place I'll go with you, Callie, is like when it turns to physical violence, yeah. that's when, and there was an, an incident where Cardi, yeah. Cardi, you know, she's had, a, she's had a couple of very serious charges, both uh, uh, mm-hmm. criminal charges yeah. and other charges levied against her. And that's the direction I don't want to see it go in. But to treat this as if it's some sort of explosive Story. This happens all the time in rap, and just because they're beefing now doesn't mean it's going to be that way. But Michael, and to your point, yeah. that physical physical stuff has happened with men yes, in rap has. many times. Oh, many, many yeah, times. So and that's, that's what not, I was going to say. And how yeah. many times do you think like their agents lean on them and say, create some physical violence? It's uh, it's hard to know. I mean, Cardi, mm-hmm. I don't think Cardi really listens no, to her no. agents. <laughs> it feels a little personal to me, but, I, but you all say it's different. Um, let's talk about Hassan Minaj. She's um, using his platform, he has a show on Netflix. This is interesting to me. Um, uh, and yet he is commenting on Islamophobia that is being portrayed on another Netflix show called Bodyguard. So let's just take a listen, first of all. Bodyguard is good, though, right? It's good. It's so good, you almost forget about the Islamophobia. Almost. <laughs> almost. You can still taste it, though, a little bit. <sighs> Why does he have to be so close to the bomb? But ah, the drama is so gripping. I think that's bold. I mean, I think it's impressive, but you know, talk about biting the hand that is literally feeding you. (laughs) But he's feeling like, I mean, I think he's speaking to his authenticity. Is that just me? What do you guys think? Yeah. I think it's great. I mean, and it's I what think we, it's great, too. It's what we've come to expect from him, honestly. Yeah. I mean, if you followed his career, he's never been somebody to bite his tongue about, about anything. And when he was doing the White House Correspondence Theater or when he was on Daily Show or when he was doing Patriot Act, he's the same performer, has the same politics. I also think it can be a lesson to other people in the business who uh, are feeling a similar kind of conflict and might be afraid that if your product is good enough, they're not going to cut you off just for criticizing the parent company. And I think it also speaks to the division of labor in these companies. Like, it's not like everyone goes to the same studio to produce these Netflix shows and he's going to see the producer of the, <laughs> of the show. He's comp- like, th- there's a lot of distance and disconnect between these shows. So, yeah. so there is some, some safety, some safety there. But really, if the if his work is good enough, and it is, they're not going to uh, pull his show. I mean, he's he's absolutely correct, and he's killing it on stage on his show, so uh, more power to him. And he's using it to raise awareness. A lot of people probably didn't and even pay attention to that. You he's know. using it to raise awareness, and it, it is really upsetting. I mean, it really yeah, yeah. is upsetting, the, the, the portrayal of that woman. And, um, you know, the other thing is, um, and Michael, I just have to sort of step aside a tiny bit from what you're saying, because there have been some cases lately where people have criticized, you know, ongoing stuff at a, at, at a, um, at a station and been fired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if more people do it, that will happen less. Right. Yeah. So it needs to be normalized. And so if, you're, if you are, like, in that successful position as he is with a certain amount of power, you should do it. Okay. Well, we're going to leave it there, and I thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Callie. Thank you. Rachel Rubin is a professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and Michael Jeffries is an associate professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Coming up, Duke Ellington, Hula Hoops, and Breakdancing Snowflakes are just a few of the fresh twists on Tchaikovsky's classic Nutcracker, keeping us on our toes this holiday season. We take a look at the reimagined Nutcrackers taking the stage next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. You're listening to The Sugar Plum Dance, performed by Take Six. The 2010 recording is a modern take on one of the iconic melodies from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker. The classic ballet has been a beloved holiday tradition in the U.S. since the 1950s. And over the decades, variations of the production have evolved to reflect a diverse array of dance communities. This year, Bostonians will be treated to five separate productions of the Nutcracker, each with its own special presentation. Here with me to crack open a few of these on-point reimaginings are Tony Williams, the founder and artistic director of Boston's Urban Nutcracker. He also runs the Tony Williams Dance Center in Jamaica Plain. Hello, Tony. Hello. Glad to have you. Also joining me in studio is Iris Fanger, Boston-based theater and dance critic and arts historian. She has written for the Patriot Ledger, the Christian Science Monitor, the New York Times, and Dance Magazine. Welcome, Iris. Hello. And joining me from NPR's New York Bureau is Jennifer Weber, the director and choreographer of the internationally touring Hip Hop Nutcracker. She is also the founder and director of the Brooklyn-based hip-hop theater company, Decadence Theater. Hello, Jennifer. How's it going? It's going well. Glad to have all of you in place. Well, Tchaikovsky wrote this, or, or was first performed, rather, in 1892, 1892 in St. Petersburg. It's just hard to get my mind around the fact that it is still as popular as it is, particularly in America. And, of course, it began as a a very formal ballet, a European ballet, Tony Williams, and yet it endures. Why do you think? Uh, I think the music, it's uh, fantastic. And that's, uh, I I think that is part of it. And um, and then I think Mr. Balanchine, uh, when he first did his version in 1954, I mm. think it was, mm-hmm. uh, it was done around Christmas time. So I think the combination, uh, that was sort of um, the impetus that uh, brought it to where it is today, where it's done everywhere. And that's master choreographer George Balanchine. Yes, yes. George uh, Balanchine. Okay. In, yeah. in New York. Yes. Um, Iris, what, how do you answer that? Why do you think it endures? Well, I, th- I think, um, pardon me for being a historian, but <laughs> if you go back to 1940 and the Walt Disney Fantasia, I think that's when the score was probably uh, pervaded the land. And so that predated um, Balanchine. Mm. But, of course, with Balanchine's Nutcracker, and he was the mentor to so many of the local companies, including Virginia Williams, who was uh, his direct beneficiary. Um, when she started the uh, Nutcracker in Boston uh, in ni- 1964, 1965, I believe, um, that just pervaded the land as well. Jennifer Weber, your same question to you. Why does this endure? Yeah, I think that, you know, the the Tchaikovsky score really just embodies the spirit of the holiday season. I think there's just something magical about those melodies and and the way we embody them on stage. And the Nutcracker just makes everyone really feel like into the holiday spirit. All right. I want to play a little, just a little piece from the traditional Nutcracker so people can, if they can't remember it, can reorient themselves to what the music, some of the music sounds like. Thank you. 
right, so that's their traditional. So, Tony Williams, how do you listen to that? Uh, you who have been a dancer yourself performing the very formal European version of this and say, hmm, I'm going to do something different with this. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, well, when I did my urban nutcracker, um, I, I knew that I couldn't just do the traditional one, which I was raised on. And uh, I had heard Duke Ellington's uh, orchestration, and, uh, and I thought, well, you know, I, because I um, had done the original, I said I still want to bring that into the contemporary uh, approach that I brought. And, uh, and so I uh, would weave the Duke Ellington with the original Tchaikovsky. And, uh, and in fact, what you just played, we use that's, that's the party scene. Um, let's take a listen from the Urban Nutcracker featuring Duke Ellington Jazz and Hula Hoops, as we've said. <laughs> So that's from the Urban Nutcracker, which was um, designed, created by you, Tony Williams, here in Boston. Mm -hmm. um, when you first proposed that, did people say, huh? Um, <laughs> yes, I, you know, I got this idea. Um, I had my dance school. I started a school in Jamaica Plain. And uh, the first year that I had the school, I had these two guys that taught for me. One taught hip hop and one taught tap. Mm. And I did the classical part of it. And, uh, and they attracted uh, a third of the population were boys, which is kind of rare for a dance school. And uh, in, in that first year, I was thinking, gee, I'd like to use these boys. And, and, uh, and, and because I had a school and I had the parents, I said, oh, let's do the Nutcracker because then, you know, you get them all involved and they're excited. But, of course, you know, I didn't want to copy the traditional Nutcracker that's being done very well in Boston uh, at the Opera House. And so I said, uh, why don't I use that mm. music I heard? And so I put the two together and I used the hip-hop teacher Ricardo and the tap teacher Khalid Hill, who's going to be in our show this year, tapping, and uh, and that's how I got this idea. And Jennifer Weber, so we say hip hop, and that's that's your whole space. Um, you're using the traditional music, but uh, it's set to um, hip hop choreography that you created and designed. How did you come to that? Yeah, I'm really just interested as an artist in, in where different cultures sort of collide. So I think there's something really magical about taking things from two different worlds and bringing them together. So hip-hop dance plus classical music, um, what ends up happening is you're able to sort of hear the music in a new way because of the way we accent our bodies to sort of amplify different sounds within the score. And at the same time, it allows you to see the hip-hop choreography in a new way because you're used to seeing it to very predictable hip-hop rhythms. But when you put it on to Tchaikovsky, then all of a sudden it becomes super unpredictable. And so you're just looking at it like in a totally fresh way. And tell me the plot of your Nutcracker, uh, your hip-hop Nutcracker, because it's different. Um, you've modernized it, as Tony has, um, the story. Yeah, I mean, we we try to stay pretty much true to the original story of the Nutcracker. So we do have all the sort of like elements that you're used to seeing in terms of, you know, we have uh, Drosselmeyer who brings the toys that come to life and a huge battle between the mice and the soldiers and the dance of the snowflakes. So it has all the sort of like iconic elements, but we do set it in present day and we've sort of um, flipped the second act to be a time travel back to the 80s um, where we're, we go to a nightclub where we see Maria Clara's parents and we, we've sort of 
fused the idea that originally the lead dancer in the E.T.A. Hoffman uh, story that it's based on is Marie, and then in the Balanchine version is Clara, and so we call our lead uh, female dancer Maria Clara. Um, so she goes back in time to see her parents the night they met uh, in the 80s in a bar, and they have to work to bring the magic back to the present. Um, Jennifer, I'm gonna we're gonna post online some clips from your piece, the uh, hip hop Nutcracker, because I could play a piece of it, but it sounds just like the original music because you're using it. But I have to say, one of the scenes I saw, for example, with the Russian dancers, that hip hop choreography set to that is utterly amazing. Congratulations <laughs> to you. I mean, Thank it's so perfectly much. timed. I, I don't know how you did it. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, that's that's the magic of, of hip hop. It's just um, as legit as a vocabulary as any other dance style. So, of course, we can we can use any type of music we want to, you know, to tell our story. So, Iris Fanger, you've watched so many versions of traditional and non-traditional of the Nutcracker. What? How are people responding to a reimagining of the Nutcracker? There seems to be more space for this now and more acceptance. Oh, well, I've, I've seen uh, the Sarasota Ballet do the John Ringling Circus Nutcracker. Wow. The, the old Hartford <laughs> Ballet, which is no longer in existence, did a Mark Twain um, Nutcracker set in the 19th century with Indians and cowboys. And Clara was little Lotta Crabtree, an actress, a famous child actress. Um, I love Tony's urban nutcracker because he, in his scenery, is the Sitco sign. And right, it's, it's very set in Boston, Bo- we should very say. Very Bostonian, yeah. and it, it, the show starts with a group of doo-wop singers who are old-timers from the Boston jazz era. So it's so delightfully set in, in not only in America and in modern times, but in Boston. I think people respond to it very well. I think one... One thing about these different nutcrackers is that a lot of families have taken their children to see the nutcracker already. And even though those of us in the dance world can see a hundred different swan lakes and love it to see how each one is done differently, there are people who will say, oh, been there, done that. And so when there's an urban nutcracker or a hip-hop nutcracker or a circus nutcracker, the family feels, aha, it's Christmas time. We'll see the spirit of the holiday, but we'll also see something different. Do you think that it's also um, people are more open to modern interpretations of ballet, really? I mean, we're, we're turning all of that on its head in many of these versions. But along with it, I think there's an opening, but I'm not a dance critic. So what, what do you see? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think contemporary dance, I mean, back in the 40s when Ballet Russe was, was touring the land and People thought of ba- of dance as ballet or stage dance as ballet. Now we've got contemporary dance, we've got hip hop, we've got tap dance, and it's one big dance world. And the uh, ballet dancers take tap and jazz, and the uh, contemporary dancers take ballet, uh, all to expand what their bodies can do, but also to go with these various styles. So it's an expansive dance world, not just ballet anymore. Uh, That's my guest, Iris Fanger. She's a longtime arts historian and dance critic. Now, Tony, we mentioned that you set the Urban Nutcracker in Boston. Jennifer just told us the story behind the the hip-hop Nutcracker, but uh, your piece is set in Boston. uh, So it has a particular resonance for people here. Uh Uh, Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I um, still use the traditional Nutcracker story, but it takes place today. And uh, it's uh, got all of the characters, uh, except the father 
is uh, deployed, and he's in the Army, so he's not there for the party scene. And uh, we um, use different uh, styles of dance, uh, and each year we could have flamenco, Irish step, uh, uh, crumping, hip-hop, tap, and um, and then the snowflake scene is uh, with uh, snowflakes falling in tutus on point, and it's very classical. And, uh, and also we have a Christmas tree that grows. So we have some of the elements, but it's not what you expect mm-hmm. uh, when, when you come. It's not that straightforward. There are all these little twists along the way, uh, and it's kind of fascinating that way. And it's good for the whole family. It's not just, uh, you know, the uh, wives that drag their husbands at the ballet. <laughs> yeah. uh, they tend to fall asleep sometimes at, at the ballet. Mm-hmm. But in my, my show, they all seem to be very alert. And it's good for boys. It's not just girls. Mm-hmm. You know, girls, boys, and women, and men. It's good for everybody. So, Jennifer Weber, I wonder if in your piece, uh, The Hip Hop Nutcracker, uh, there is more acceptance and resonance in this moment because of Hamilton. Did Hamilton add um, interest in hip hop in a way that perhaps before you had to work harder for? I think, you know, Hamilton has definitely opened a lot of people's minds to the image of hip-hop and, and using hip-hop in theatrical ways. So I, I'm very grateful for, for Hamilton, and it's an amazing show. And, and, you know, I think the future of hip-hop in, in theater and in dance is really, really exciting. So the word that I keep hearing about these reimaginings of Nutcracker is inclusivity. Jennifer, would you speak to that? Do you think that the hip-hop Nutcracker is more inclusive because of both the story plot and um, the dance form. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, just in terms of our cast, like we have the most, you know, diverse cast that that you can imagine. We have people from all over and we represent so many different, you know, minorities. And and when we look out into the audience, it's the same thing. We see the same diversity. So you're going to see, you know, young kids Older people, people who love hip hop, people who love the ballet, all different ethnicities, ages. Like, it's just there's something about this show that really brings people together. That's my guest, Jennifer Weber. She's a director and choreographer of the internationally touring hip hop Nutcracker. Tony Williams, same question to you. Inclusivity, I keep hearing it. Is that something that you were striving for with the Urban Nutcracker? Uh, yes. And uh, part of it is because of my background, which is I have a black dad and a white mom. And so I've always been diverse in my uh, views. And um, uh, and so when I did my show, um, I wanted to um, show that in uh, the Urban Nutcracker in our cast from the beginning in 2001. Uh, you know, we, we had a very diverse cast. We've done a Urban Nutcracker with an LGBTQ theme. And the Sugar Plum is the man on point. Mm -hmm. And and we do an autism-friendly show as well. Uh, So we try to be inclusive. It's it's not just the dance styles. It's the audience that we want to include. All right. Uh, Iris, you want to add to that? Yes. Well, I think uh, we should mention also Mark Morris and his uh, version called The Hard Nut, which is certainly about 15 years old now. And he had the uh, snowflakes as men in tutus on point. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, long before the uh, transgender LBGG emphasis, which you see now more and more and more in theater, um, he had that really right up front, and it was terrific, just terrific in his 
and it's still going on. They still do that. So, Iris, you're out there with the audiences. What do you hear from people as they are absorbing these reimaginings of, mm. a, you know, a holiday favorite? Sometimes, you know, you want the same meal at, at the holiday. Mm. <laughs> Don't mess with it. And then other times you want to try something different. I, <laughs> I hear a lot of excitement. Mm-hmm. I see the same thing, whether it's the Urban Nutcracker or the Boston Ballet Nutcracker or Jose Mateo's uh Nutcracker, I hear a lot of excitement. I see the children very involved. And what, what I love the most is the children believe it. They believe mm. the magic. They believe the, the tree. They believe the, that they're in a special place. And also, it is very often the only time that these audiences come to a dance performance. Mm. And, that's and a really good point. You know, from my bargain, mm. you know, from my side of the story, that's all to the good. And then I think sometimes they'll go back. To something uh, else. Je- yes, Jennifer, would you speak to that? Because I, I think that because the Nutcracker is often used as a teaching tool, you know, just about ballet in general, uh, Iris is right. It's the first thing they'll see. So it's likely your version will be the first thing they'll see uh, of, of the Nutcracker. Yeah, I think it's it's very common that because the Nutcracker has sort of like transcended the dance world to become just a big piece of pop culture at the holidays. It's like something that people will go to even if they're not your general dance audience. Um, and that I think that's really exciting. And I hope, you know, that when they do see a, a dance show, they get excited about the potential to see more. So now you're, you come to Boston for two days this year. As you're going from city to city, is there a difference in the response to audiences? Or are you finding about the same? You know, no matter where we go, whether it's, you know, major metropolitan areas or the Pacific Northwest or into the South, you know, we really we travel all over. I think we're hitting 28 cities this year. Um, the audiences just love it. There's some there's something about, you know, the, this magical juxtaposition of, of hip hop and classical music that everyone just gets so excited by. So wherever we go, you know, we see kids dancing in the aisles. We see people really enjoying themselves. And, and, and it's a really magical uh, thing to be a part of. Tony, same for you. Um, do the audiences change over the time? Have you seen uh, different levels of acceptance or more interest in certain pieces? Uh, you know, I think in the very beginning, back in 2001, when we uh, debuted the Urban Nutcracker at the Strand Theater in Dorchester, we had uh, an extremely uh, mixed audience in terms of uh, where folks come from, either rich, poor, black, white, whatever. Mm-hmm. And through the years, I've seen that continue. And then when we moved downtown to the John Hancock Hall, some of my friends would say, how come you got to leave Dorchester and mm-hmm. go downtown? And it was because the show was getting kind of big, and, mm-hmm. and, and we didn't have enough of an audience, so we moved downtown. But we were able to maintain the diversity. And uh, this year, we're moving down to the Schubert Theater, which is exciting. And, uh, and, and I hope that we bring our... Uh, sort of crunchy granola diverse audience <laughs> and then get more uh, suburban folks that come in because oh if it's at the Schubert it's got to be good so yes yes the Schubert <laughs> is in in the theater district here so it just seems to imply certain kinds of things so um there are five productions in Boston this year which really says to me wow that's a lot of of Nutcracker so you, you can't miss it if you really want to see it and you want to see it differently you can do that and um, you can have an opportunity to to also see um, the Boston Ballet which has made this kind of almost a core piece uh, Tony you danced in it when you were a dancer right yes I was Isn't... in the very first show actually we did a Nutcracker before in in 1964 
Uh, and I think in 65 is when Arthur Fiedler conducted. And um, uh, I think I was in the Russian dance back then. Wow. And it was because of uh, Arthur that uh, I, I think that's what made the Nutcracker so successful because he was so internationally well-known. All right, so last comments. What do you guys uh, want to say to people who are listening, thinking, well, maybe I'll sample a little bit of something different and um, and go for a different take on the Nutcracker? So, Jennifer, I'll start with you. Um, just to get people th- rethinking what they think they know about a story told over and over. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, People should be, you know, open to, to new takes on stories. And I think if people are, are interested in hip-hop and how the language of hip-hop can be used to tell different types of stories, then Hip-Hop Nutcracker is the is the Nutcracker for them. <laughs> okay. Tony? Um, sure. Um, I did see the Hip-Hop Nutcracker last year, and it was very, very good. Oh, okay. And uh, this year um, I would, uh, you know, invite anyone to come if you're not sure um, about what the urban Nutcracker Cracker is, but you should come and see it because there's something traditional in it. You get your you get your point shoes and your tutus, and you get your crumping guy in the soldier doll dance. And the Russian dance is sort of a house dance, which is a little bit of the tray oh, pack mixed in with. It's very campy, yeah. and um, so yes. And uh, Iris, a different question to you, and that is, does this say that dance is universal now? I mean, that that we we've embraced. Um, a traditional version, many traditional versions, and also um, eagerly look towards some reimagining? Well, I, in my mind, as I see it in Boston with these five productions and um, hundreds, literally hundreds of people going to see it, I see it as a tradition of celebrating Christmas. And think how far back that goes and the different ways people celebrate Christmas. And I think, quite frankly, in America, Uh, We celebrate Christmas by seeing the Nutcracker. All right. Well, I thank you all for joining me. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Tony Williams is the founder and artistic director of Boston's Urban Nutcracker. Iris Fanger is a Boston-based dance and theater critic and arts historian. And Jennifer Weber is the director and choreographer of the internationally touring Hip Hop Nutcracker. We'll leave you now with Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, performed by Pentatonix. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Da-da-da.